You're listening to the Blended Family Podcast, a weekly show with a strong focus on strategies and methods to help your family thrive. Blended families face many difficulties and challenges, which can sometimes drive families apart. The goal of this podcast is to help your blended family grow together through these challenges to create the peaceful and loving home you desire. Here is your host, Melissa. Hi there. You're joining me today for episode 89 of the Blended Family Podcast. As promised, I've got a great interview for you today with an author I have been trying to get on my show since last February. Her book has just been re-released, and so this is a perfect time to have her here to talk about it. Remember I told you about an upcoming giveaway? Well, I planned on giving away a copy of her book to a lucky listener, but after our interview, the author decided she would like to give away a signed copy of her book, which is even better. As I told you, if you are already a member of my newsletter, you were already entered in to win. Stay tuned at the very end of the show, after the outro, to hear if you're the winner. If you haven't yet joined, no worries. You can still join for free at blendedfamilypodcast.com forward slash subscribe so that in the future you won't miss out. Don't forget to also find our private group over on Facebook to continue the conversations after the show at blendedfamilypodcast.com slash group. That's all. Enjoy the interview. Today, I have the pleasure and honor of speaking with Julie Lithcott-Hames, who served as Dean of Freshman and Undergraduate Advising at Stanford University, where she received the Dinkelspiel Award for her contributions to the undergraduate experience. A mother of two teenagers, she has spoken and written widely on the phenomenon of helicopter parenting, and her work has appeared on TEDx Talks and in Forbes and the Chicago Tribune. She is pursuing an MFA in creative writing at California College of the Arts in San Francisco. Today, Julie is here to talk about her book, How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kid for Success, which has just been re-released this week, but she also writes creative nonfiction, poetry, short stories, and plays. Julie, thank you so much for being here with me today. Melissa, thank you so much for having me. I am super excited to have you here. I actually heard you last year on the Dad Podcast with Justin Worsham, who I've also had on my show, and I immediately purchased a copy of your book. It was truly eye-opening for me. Now, I know you just had a re-release, so tell me first, what has changed in there, and why did you decide to release the book again? Well, it's the uh, it's the paperback version of the book, and it uh, came out about 14 months after the hardback came out, which was a great sign. Actually, it meant the hardcover was having a, a, a longer life than anticipated. Often the paperback comes out a year later, but they gave me an extra couple months with the hardback, which was awesome. The paperback has a discussion guide at the back, which... Um, I wish we had put in the original version, but we just didn't quite have all of our ducks in a row for that. And um, the reason I'm so excited about that is, you know, this isn't a book that's meant to be just sitting on a shelf. This is actually a guide for those of us who know that um, we're doing too much with and for and around and surrounding our kids. And I think we need to be in dialogue with one another via your podcast and via uh, coffees at our local elementary school and via parent ed evenings. You know, we need to be in dialogue with each other about, you know, how do we move from this overprotection and overdirection and excessive handholding toward 
um, a, a healthier approach to raising our kids to this thriving adulthood. So those discussions, questions in the back are really the only significant difference. Um, and um, and of course, the paperback is is about ten dollars cheaper, <laughs> or thirteen dollars cheaper even than the hardback. So so get your paperback now. Yeah, yes. I will definitely have to get my hands on the new version and look that over. So Julie, one of the first things I noticed when reading the book is that you didn't just write your opinion about things, but you really did a lot of research as well to back up what you have to say. And I know you have experience not only as a parent, but also as a dean, and that helped you as well. So I'd like you to tell us why you decided to write this book. What motivated you? Yeah. Well, it's funny. As you say this, Melissa, I'm flipping through the book and I'm looking at my my footnotes, which I'm very proud of, and my bibliography, which is also pretty pretty dense. And that's the lawyer in me. I was a lawyer before I was a university dean, and I'm really interested in you know in getting at the source of information and then providing that information for readers because a reader like me wants to know you know not just about a great idea or an important concept, but how can I learn more? So I I'm really glad that that's there in the back. I know plenty of people will skip over it, but um, for those like me who like to go on a bit of a research treasure hunt that's in there too. So yeah, I wrote this because I was dean of freshman at Stanford, which by the way is my undergraduate alma mater. I love the place. I'm of the place. And I got to be the dean of freshman from 2002 to 2012. And over the arc of that 10-year period, I saw uh, um, every year a freshman class that was somehow more accomplished than the last um, in a resume and transcript, GPA, test score sense, they were somehow inexplicably, it seemed, even more talented than the prior class. Of course, as a parent, I now know it's because in certain communities we do all of this effort making to try to you know improve the grades and the scores. And so, yeah, each year on paper, they were more accomplished. But this is why I wrote the book. Each year, more and more of my freshmen seemed less and less familiar with their own selves, which I realize is a very abstract concept. But what I mean is I would sit in, in office hours with my students or in small group conversations with them, and they could tell me what they'd done, you know, what was on their resume, but not necessarily why they'd been motivated to do it or which aspect of it, whatever it was, a summer research project, uh, you know, a particular uh, community service trip they took, you know, why did it matter to them except to get into college? So I, I began to appreciate that they had done so much for the explicit purpose of getting into a place like Stanford, and obviously it had worked, um, but I worried at the sort of level of existentialism, like who are these people, and and why did they seem to need to be in frequent contact with their parents, you know, multiple times a day, texting, calling, answering questions from parents, asking parents, how do I do this, where do I go for that, what should I do next, this just happened, you know, help. And I thought, wait a minute, these guys are 18, 19, and of course I knew them as sophomores and juniors and seniors too, 22 years old, when will they feel they are capable of making their own choices mm. or solving their own problems? You know, when will they seize that mantle of adulthood and be proud to hashtag adult? You know, is this generation ever um, going to have that happen for them or are they going to be continually dependent upon their parents? And boy, I hope not because that's not a strategy that's going to work over the long term. No, definitely not. And I see the shift in parenting. It's interesting to me because it really seems like it happened in one generation's time. When I was a kid, things were completely different. And I have to be honest, 
I know that I myself am contributing to the change and I don't know why. That's why I'm so intrigued with the book. It seems like most of us are aware that we're overparenting, but yet we can't stop. So Julie, where did this shift come from? What happened? Yeah. Well, I'm not going to ask you to tell your listeners your age, Melissa, but I'll tell them mine. I'm 48, which means I was born in 1967. And um, like you just said, I mean, I had a very different childhood than um, the childhood in which I'm raising my kids today. And I and I confess to readers, I'm part of the problem. I'm not some judgmental dean saying what's wrong with parents today. I was once a judgmental dean who then realized, oh my goodness, here I am in Silicon Valley over-parenting my own kids. And I, and I think I, I managed to try to write with a pretty compassionate approach um, to what we parents are doing. Here's Here was the genesis. Parenting began to change in this country. Well, first of all, let's pause right there, Melissa. Parenting. We've put ourselves at the center of it. <laughs> Parenting, right? It used to be child-rearing. Yeah. Now it's about us and how good we are at it. Parent. I'm parenting. How well am I parenting? Okay, so in the 80s... Um, and by the way, let me start with how I knew this. Okay, so here I am. I'm a dean. I'm worried. What's up with my students? Uh, what's up with me? I've got you know young kids at this point. My kids are now 17 and 15, but when I discovered the problem in my own house, they were about 8 and 10. And I was like, what has changed? My students started to come to campus with their parents in tow. Um, actually, in the late 90s, before I was freshman dean, uh, I was in a different role on campus. And we noticed like more and more students are bringing parents who seem to expect to play a role in the management of the university life. Well, I dialed back 18 years, again, doing that research, like what the heck was going on in the childhoods of these college students, you know, that might lend a clue or two to why the parents can't drop them off at college. And here's what I found. In the early to mid-80s, there were a number of important factors afoot that really conspired to change childhood. Uh, the first um, was the play date was born in 1984. It's the first use on record. You know, before that, play was free and unstructured, didn't require a parent's um, involvement in scheduling it or observing it. Kids just played with kids. You know, you, I've heard somebody put this so beautifully. It was like, you want to know where your friends are? Because, of course, this was before the Internet and cell phones and parent worries. You know, you want to know where your friends are. You kind of look down the street for where the bicycles were piled up, mm-hmm. right? The bicycle bicycles piled up outside so-and-so's house on the front lawn. That's where the kids were, you know? Boy, it sounds like we're talking about the nineteen, the 1800s, um, but we're talking about like 1977. You know, All right, so the play date was born in 84. Stranger Danger was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, really made its way into our nation's mindset, um, in uh, really our consciousness um, in 1983, with a very well publicized case of a you know a horrific case of of stranger abduction and murder of a child. Um, the self-esteem movement was born here in California. The notion that kids should get applauded for doing every little thing. So we got all these ribbons and trophies and certificates and awards just for playing soccer, not for being any good at it. And then um, A Nation at Risk was published, a book saying American teenagers needed a lot more testing and more teaching to the test resulted. Um, so parents were all of a sudden in these few years, I should add there's a fifth set of factors, safety, bike helmets, seat belts, um, car seat laws, all rolled into effect across the country state by state in the mid-80s. We became much safer, much more able to control our environment. But that notion that we should wear seatbelts in cars, which of course save lives, led to, you know, padded uh, corners on coffee tables and, you know, the entire house being baby-proof. So, so all of that meant that childhood, from playgrounds to sidewalks to the sidelines of kids' activities to homework, 
you know, to them learning to stand and, and walk and make their way in the world was heavily attended by parents. Parents always there to observe and prevent and protect and smooth the path and create opportunity for kids and kind of always be there. And those kids first subjected to that kind of childhood in the mid-80s became the first set of college students who came to college with parents who couldn't let go. Mm. That is so interesting. So, and I see, I mean, I, you you know, my age, I'm 39, so um, I'm not much younger than you. And I definitely know that when I was a kid, it was like, you know, you'd go out, you'd play, your parents didn't worry about you, you didn't have the cell phones. And now, you know, my kids have cell phones and it's like, they go out and I'm calling them every few, you know, are you okay? And it's silly because years ago you wouldn't have done that, but you know, it's like, we all can't help ourselves because they have the cell phones. It's like, we want this constant interaction with them. It's crazy. Right. Right. So let me, let me add, cause I didn't really get to your original question. Mm -hmm. Why are we doing this? So this began in the early eighties, long before you were raising kids, uh, before I was raising kids. And here's why we do it. It seems to work quote unquote, when you had your kids, how old are your kids? So I've got four. The oldest is 17. Uh, That's a boy. And then I've got three girls, 15, 13, and 12. Okay. And my guys are 17 and 15. When our kids came into our lives, we looked left and right, looked down the street, looked at the school, and we, we, we learned how to parent in part from our own memories of how we were raised mm-hmm. and part of our own philosophy. But we looked to see what our neighbors and, and, uh, you know, and friends were doing. And this manner of over-parenting has a short-term benefit. You know, a kid's ego goes unbruised if we're there to mediate every childhood dispute. You know, their knee goes unskinned to borrow a phrase from Wendy Mogul's book, The Blessing of a Skin Knee, when we're there at the playground, you know, to prevent them from, you know, falling off the rock wall, the climbing wall, okay? There's a win, there's a benefit, but the long-term cost is they're not actually living life for themselves and they will need us well into the adult years to look after them unless we've taught them to do for themselves. So, Here's the thing with technology. Just because we can pick up this cell phone, and I'm holding mine in my hand right now, doesn't mean we ought to GPS track our children like they're endangered rhino in the Serengeti. Yeah. You know, yeah. my daughter, my son just left this morning. All right, I'm in California. Um, it's, you know, you've called me. It's about, you know, 12, 12 noon here. I had to get him to the airport at 4 a.m. for a 6 a.m. flight. We left the house at 4. He's 17. He's going on a college trip with a family friend. And, um, uh, you know, I dropped him off at San Francisco International Airport. It's not his first time taking a flight alone. Uh, I know he knows how to do it. He's 17. He's a rising senior. I wrote this book, and yet I'm still, you know, returning from the airport, crawling back into bed with my husband, and I'm like, do I need to text him? Should I text him, make sure he got through security? Do I need to make sure? You know, my husband's like, it's all right, baby. He's got it. And I know he's got it. I know my son is capable. I know even if he's not completely got it, he needs to learn it. And me being there with my security blanket of a cell phone text message is not helping my son. I'm confident if something goes wrong, you know, he can find someone who can help him. And yet what I'm trying to convey to you is even knowing what I know, even having written this book, I still want to be in constant touch with my kids. And I have to sometimes sit on my hands or just put the phone to the side and say, you know what? I do not need to be in constant touch. He gains 
such a degree of freedom. He grows as a human when he's not in constant touch with us. And I want that for him. I'm, I love the fact actually, now that it's, you know, many hours later and he's already changed planes in Dallas, you know, I haven't heard from him. I know he's okay. And that the more we can have those experiences, the more we can exhale and remember our own childhood where our parents didn't know where we were every 20 minutes you know, we can actually experience some freedom in our own lives. I can have a healthy, vibrant adult life, you know, enjoy spending some time with my husband and not feel like I have to know where my 17 year old is every 20 minutes. Yes, Yes. that is so true. So I know we can't touch on everything in the book in the time that we have, but I do want to talk about one of the chapters, which is titled our kids lack basic life skills. And this is so true. I look around and it's scary. Kids are being coddled to the point where they just can't do anything on their own. And again, I know that I fall short in this department too, though I'm not terrible. I do try to teach my kids lots of life skills, but there are areas that I need to improve. And I think back to when I was young and I know that I was a lot more capable than my kids are. So where's the disconnect? What are we doing wrong? Like, like I knew how to cook at the ages of my kids and I'm afraid to let them use the oven when I'm gone. So why, why am I doing that? Well, um, it's great that you share that because I think there's a lot of confessional behind all of this. Um, so many of us are afraid letting our kids use knives, letting them use the stove, um, letting them be home alone at a certain age, even though we might've been babysitting other Mm -hmm. kids when we were that age. I mean, that's what I try to keep in mind. Um, You know, I think this, let me acknowledge that my book is written about kids whose parents have enough time and money on their hands such that they can overparent. Overparenting is a problem of privilege. If you're a working class family or, you know, you're you're raising kids amid poverty, you don't have the wherewithal to hover over your kids every moment. The basic necessities of life need to be attended to. The problem I'm talking about is at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And I just want to acknowledge that for your listeners who are shaking their heads, like, what are they talking about? We're talking about a problem in middle class and upper middle class families and beyond, where we tend to focus on cultivating our kids' enrichment. We want every afternoon to be useful and productive and enriching and important, you know, all in furtherance of development. Developing a passion or an interest that we think will impress a college admissions dean one day. And so we tend to let them off the hook for things like chores. And this chapter you've referred to, chapter 14, Teach Life Skills, goes into the tremendous essential benefit of kids doing chores. And Melissa, when I stumbled upon this concept, my kids were 8 and 10, I think, they weren't doing any chores. We were helping with, we were doing everything. They were like little dictators, you know, waiting to be served. And as Wendy Mogul has put it, um, that's how kids are today. No, they can do as early as age two and three and four and five. There's a list in here in my book, six and seven, eight and nine, all different levels of chores, all age appropriate, going down to the smallest, youngest kids. And um, we've just forgotten that chores Uh, are an essential way to build work ethic and build character, build a sense of responsibility and accountability. So that's, uh, parents often tell me, my kid hates your book. They call it the chores book because there is this really wonderful list in here of things, you know, we've got to get our kids to do. So going back to chores would be a great way to start. And of course, kids grow more and more skills. You know, you see like, oh my gosh, they can they can slice that big loaf of bread. They can put it, you know, some bread in the toaster. They can turn on the stove. They can make a simple meal. You know, they've got to learn these things. If you think about it, if we don't let them in our home, 
with our supervision that we gradually pull back on because we watch them grow more and more competent, they'll be these 17-year-olds or these 20-year-olds who are out there in the world in a shared apartment. Like, I'm not sure I know how to use a knife because I was never allowed to at home. You know, how do I turn on the stove? You know, what's the difference between a microwave and a gas range oven? You know, like, what's, you know, they need to learn these things. We're not doing them any favors by doing it all for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just want to point out one thing, because I know you said where you, your aim of the book was towards, you know, not a working class family that works as much. You know, I just want to bring up that I we work all day long and we're not parents that are home hovering over the kids. But I do still see myself with some of these issues. And I think that part of that is because I am from a blended family. We have a blended family. And it's kind of like such a chaotic thing that... Yeah. Um, you know, it, we're not home a lot, but yet I think because of the different households and the different rules at the different households that we just see that this is an issue. And maybe because, you know, some of the kids aren't with us all the time that when they are with us, maybe we don't want to enforce all the chores. We only see them for a weekend, for instance. So we don't want to be like, well, you need to do, you know, A, B and C. Maybe we just want to enjoy our time with them for the weekend. And I think that's an issue that a lot of my listeners have, because um, I don't think it's just an issue of parents that are home and around and have right. more money. You know, I just wanted to say that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And yeah. um, um, I think you're absolutely right. In a blended family circumstance, it's like you want to maximize the good. You want to squeeze the good out of the time right. you've got. And here's, but but here's, I think the point, chores don't have to be, you know, we think of chores, all of a sudden I'm conjuring up like Little House on the Prairie or the Waltons. It's like, you know, go milk that cow, you know. For many of us, that's not the reality today. Um, it's more like, you know, can you pour the milk for the cereal for the family? You know, it's it's much simpler stuff that isn't a drudgery, but it's sort of how to how to be useful, how to contribute. And you can actually turn that into um, a fun morning. If you take the kids, you're like you've got them for the weekend, you're like, okay, guys, you know, we're all going to make breakfast together and I'm going to assign tasks. You can tell me what you want, but if, if you don't have a preference, I'm assigning it. You know, I need one of you making pancakes. I need one of you cutting fruit. I need one of you, you know, setting the table. I need one of you, you know, you like you pick the tasks and, you know, you set them at it. Kids want to be more competent than they are. They want to crack eggs in a bowl and stir it up and make a pancake batter. You know, they want to know how to turn the bacon over on the stove. You know, they 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 feel incompetent, you know, when we don't let them do that. We've got to, you know, you don't give a, a five-year-old a sharp knife, you know, but you ought to be able to sit there with your 12-year-old and say, like, look, let me show you how to hold this this tomato, you know, with the right kind of knife so that you can slice it and, you know, you're not going to get cut and we're going to end up with good slice. Like you teach them, but you don't micromanage them. You don't insist that it be perfect. You do this, you know, one or two or three weekends in a row. You've got a bunch of little chefs who feel a tremendous sense of accomplishment. And then when they're eating that breakfast, they're having that wonderful family meal. Everyone has been a part of it. And, you know, this is the part we're totally overlooking. Kids want to feel competent. They want to feel the satisfaction that comes when you've actually done, you know, put in a, a bit of skin in the game and, and done some hard work. So it actually, can, my point is, it can actually be a fun family activity. Like, let's get out there and rake those leaves, guys. Come on. And, you you, you know, everyone gets a broom and everyone pitches in. And at some point, someone throws someone into the pile. I mean, there's like, there's fun amid the work. But the point is, you're all, you're all doing it together instead of you, you know, and your partner kind of just trying to ensure your kids have, you know, the sort of rose-colored version of a weekend uh, when yeah, they're with yeah. you. 
much. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you for saying that. Now, one of the things that I see, and I don't know how things are all over the country or even the world, but here in Florida where I am, I see the problem extends far greater than just in the family unit. I see a problem in the school systems. And back in my school days, if you didn't do an assignment, you got a zero. But nowadays, they tell my kids they can make up the work whenever they want. And back in my day, if you failed a test, you failed a test. Now, they allow my kids to retake the test whenever they want. They even allow open book tests. And this frustrates me because I know that this is teaching my children that they don't need to try hard and that it's okay to procrastinate. So regardless of what I try to instill in them, at home, I feel like the school system is working against me in a sense. And I want to know, is this something that you see worldwide or is it confined to certain areas? And what can we do to fix that? Well, it's interesting. So you're raising a problem at one end of the spectrum, which is a school that is um, quite lenient, quite willing to give kids second and third chances. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people would say that's really good for their mental health. They don't feel like every test is a make or break moment for their life. You know, I'm talking to you from Silicon Valley, Palo Alto, California, where our teen suicide rate is four to five times the national average, which just makes us gasp with fear. Our kids feel they're under so much academic pressure and stress. We could probably use a little bit of that leniency here because our kids feel that you know, their their value as a human comes down to the grade they got in science today, you know, on their test. Um, you know, there so that's so there are lenient schools, there there are schools um, that are actually asking parents to be super involved. You know, schools that'll say, parent, it's your job to check the portal, make sure you know what the, your kids' grades are every day, every week. And I just think, my goodness, what have these parent portals done? to the relationship between teacher and child. I'm not checking my kids' grades. I expect to see the quarterly report that comes, the end of semester report that comes, everything between now and then, that's between me and my kid, sorry, between my kid and their teacher. You know, I'm not going to hover over them and need to know their grade every day or every week. You know, that that removes the autonomy from the kid. The kid needs to care about their homework. They care less when we act like it's it's practically our homework, like, we're teaching them, you don't, we don't trust that you care about your schoolwork, so I'm going to have to check in every day to make sure you've done what you were supposed to have done. You know, they feel like cogs in a system. They feel like inmates in a prison. You know, we want our kids to care about their work. When they have a concern, go talk to your teacher. When you haven't done as well as you might, try harder next time. You know, our kids need to build that skill set, not, um, not rely upon us to kind of uh, check in with them about their grades, remind them about their homework, correct their homework. Parents around the country, Melissa, are doing their kids' homework. I hear this everywhere I go. They want to ensure they get the right grade in the math class or the science class or whatever class so that they get into the better class next year, so they get into the better school the year beyond and the better college, you know, eight years later, whatever. Parents are outright doing their kids' homework. It's unethical. Parent, kids, teachers don't know what the kid actually knows because the parent has overhelped. And the kid gets this terrible message into their developing brains. Hey, kid, you can't actually do this work without me. Don't worry. I, your parent, will always be there. I mean, that is undermining the kid's sense of self in a mental health and wellness sense. So, yeah, I hear you on your concern about the leniency. Um, the real world doesn't come with second and third chances. I think, um, you know, schools. some schools can manage to kind of give kids a bit of leniency while, while teaching the larger message, which is, hey, you know, try, try, try again. That's what we're trying to teach you. You know, your life, um, as you get older and older, you'll be more accountable for your first draft. But here in school, we, we can afford to give you, you know, a second and third try. I don't have a problem with that. 
Okay, and it's interesting. So to hear you talk about over there in California, so it is different everywhere. So I guess it just depends where your location is. I wasn't sure if it just completely changed from the time when I was a kid, but I know that's not how it was for me, and I know that I don't agree with it. And that's one thing that I don't do is I don't get on. You know, we have Edline. You know, that that's the portal here, and I do not get on Edline every day and constantly check those grades. But you know, I get an email almost every single day: check your child's grades on Edline, and I don't do it because yeah. I have enough to do. Number one, number two, I you know I try to give them a chance to do their best. And when they do bring me the report card, I always ask them, how do you feel about your grades? And what do you think? And do you want to try better? You know, and I don't really get on them that much about that. So that's one area I feel like I'm doing okay in, but, um, it's, it's definitely an issue. So as you know, my, my show is about blended families. So one of the biggest struggles that we face is dealing with different parenting styles. Now, the newly formed blended family might have some challenges trying to get on the same page, but it's manageable. But the real struggle is more with an ex. That's often because that's not always an amicable relationship where two people want to work together and getting on the same page is rough. So tell me, how do we help our children when each bio parent has a completely different idea of how to raise their children? Yeah. Um, one of the greatest challenges we face, I think, you know, um, here's what I know. Kids, um, kids like rules, kids like boundaries. Um, kids need to know the parameters of the family dynamic. And I think that means that when they come to your house, you know, you can say, this is the way we do things here. This is why we do it. Um, this is what we value. And we know that, you know, our way may not be the way it is over at your other parents' house or even at your friend's house down the street. But this is what we believe. And this is what we value. And, you know, um, you're, you're sending a clear signal that, you know, we know we do things differently and we're okay with that. And we know we don't have the right to, you know, tell your other parent how to do things. Mm-hmm. And, and of course you try to do it without judging. You know, you don't want to say, well, your dad or your mom, you know, they don't know what they're doing or we totally disagree. You're just very affirmatively, very positive and optimistic and upbeat about the approach you take in your family. Ultimately, every kid just like every adult wants to know they're loved. They want to know they're loved unconditionally. They want to be looked in the eye, treated with kindness, and listened to. Um, and when we can give our kids that when they walk in our door, you know, we can we can get a tremendous amount out of them in terms of the behavior we want, the habits we want, the character we want. So I think it starts with that unconditional love and a clear setting of the rules and expectations in in your household. You, you have no control over the rest, but you have a lot of control over what happens in your own home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I also want to point out that in divorce is where some of this overparenting begins because lots of parents feel guilty about the divorce. And so they overcompensate by doing too much for their kids. So that's just, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> so Julie, what can you say to those of us who realize that we made some mistakes? How do we change things around? And is it ever too late to do so? You know, I believe in humans. I wrote this book because I care about humans. I care about all of us. And with that belief in mind, I don't think it's ever too late. Um, I think the earlier you can start with something like chores, for example, the better. Because kids will complain if you haven't given them chores until they're 10 or 12 or 14 or whatever. They'll look at you like, what? And whereas little kids really like to pitch in and help out, just becomes a part of the way they live life. And I think you do them a great favor if you can start them young. Um you know, the older they are, if you've got, like like you have, Melissa, a 17-year-old, as I do too, 
if if folks are listening and they realize, my goodness, I'm so over involved in my kid's life and they're, you know, they're a high school junior or senior or they're heading off to college, I think it's worth sitting down with them and saying, honey, you know, there are ways in which I think we were over involved in your childhood and you know, it's really time for us to acknowledge that, acknowledge that you're growing up, you're practically a man or a woman now. You know, that is not something that happens magically on your 18th birthday. But, you know, we want to start to pivot our relationship with you toward one where you have more responsibility and freedom. And we're we're still there to love and advise you, but we want you to be able to do more and more for yourself. Have a deliberate conversation if your kids are older. If they're heading off to college, sit down with them now, but right before they go and say, look, you're going to college. You know, we're not going to be there to manage your grades every day or to make sure your homework's in your backpack, that's on you now. You know, how can we how can we help you develop some good habits there? Maybe a few reminders in the first couple of weeks, but we really want you to be able to um, to take that on for yourself before long. So um, I would say with older kids, just be more intentional, more direct about, hey, yeah, we've been a little over-involved and now we realize it's time to pull back and we've got some a bit of ground to make up, but together we can do it. That's great. That's great. And um I kind of have just one last important question for you because you do have a chapter in the book where you talk about the damage that overparenting does to us as parents. And I think it's important to note that we aren't just hurting our children, but we are also hurting ourselves. So can you just speak about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, um, the media decries the millennial generation for failing to launch. And I love millennials. I got to work with thousands of them as a college dean. They're amazing people who just want to have a chance to make their way, just like, you know, your generation, my generation, older generations did. Okay. Why are they failing to launch? Well, in, in part, it's because we've made adulthood look so very unattractive. All adults seem to do is worry obsessively over kids' whereabouts, grades, activities, and so on. Why would they aspire to be adults when all we seem to do is hover and worry? Um, So the truth is, that's what we're doing, and our kids see that in our eyes. It's not good for us as individuals. It's not good for our uh, partnerships, our marriages. Um, We've got to reclaim a healthy adult life for ourselves and be good role models for our kids for what an adult life looks like. An adult life often includes having children and often includes having a job. It also includes often having a loving partnership, a marriage, a relationship. It includes friendship. It includes hobbies. You know, our kids need to hear us laughing with our friends, not obsessing over our kids' grades and homework, but laughing with our friends about topics that matter to us. You know, they need to feel that they're not all we care about, you know, which may sound paradoxical. Of course, we love them fiercely, but when we seem to only care about them and be so worried about them, it stresses them out. And it doesn't make for a very healthy life for us. So yeah, chapter 10 is about how overparenting stresses us out. And then the final two chapters, 21 and 22, are reclaim yourself as a parent, as a human. And then chapter 22, be the parent you want to be, which is about finding those people in your community who you know want to pull back, want to kind of create a healthier parent-child dynamic. Um, you know, it's kind of be the parent you want to be. Um, stop obsessing, stop hovering, live a vibrant, healthy life again. It's it's good for all of us, our children, as well as ourselves, as well as our communities. If we can, you know, help our kids gain that independence they need to be healthy, thriving adults. 
Yeah, well, listeners, I encourage all of you to go out today and grab yourself a copy of this book. It really is eye-opening, and it will help us as parents to do the best we can to raise our children to be able to take care of themselves. Julie, please tell everyone where they can find you and where they can get the book. Thanks, Melissa. Um, Well, first of all, I've got a TED Talk coming out. Um, recorded it many months ago, but it'll be out. Uh, this fall. Um, so check that out. It's a little tiny 10-minute version of, of what I try to preach in the book. Uh, the book's available in local bookstores. Um, it's also available on Amazon. There's an audio book read by me. There's an ebook version. It's really in every format you could want. Um, my website is howtoraiseanadult.com. I've got a pretty healthy uh, social media presence. The Facebook page is How to Raise an Adult. Twitter is at Raise an Adult. Instagram, How to Raise an Adult. So uh, get the book, join the conversation. Um, let's do what we can to kind of re- restore childhood, return it to children, and uh, you know, get a life for ourselves as well. Great. Well, I will put all of your links in the show notes for the listeners so they can refer to it later. And before we go, Julie, do you have any last words of advice or encouragement for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, Melissa's a great podcast host. It's been great to be on your show. I know I'm long-winded, but these topics are so near and dear to my heart. I, I just can't stop talking about it. Um, here's my overarching advice. Our job as parents is to put ourselves out of a job. We've succeeded when we've raised our offspring to this place of self-actualized, independent adulthood. We will love them forever, hope they'll forever love us. But we don't want our 25-year-old, 35-year-old, 40-year-old to need us constantly, barring special needs, of course. You know, what we want for them is for them to have tremendous degrees of freedom where they always know they're loved, but they have confidence that they can do for themselves. So set that goal in mind. Our job is to put ourselves out of a job. Every year, our kids should have more independence and grow more skills and therefore be more competent and more confident and maybe one day raise their own kids. That's wonderful advice, Julie. And I think what you're doing is so beneficial to this generation and generations to come. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today to talk about these issues. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right, listeners, feedback can be sent to me at melissa at blendedfamilypodcast.com. Please check out Julie's book, How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kid for Success. Have a great week, everyone, and thanks for listening. Bye. You have been listening to the Blended Family Podcast. For more information, please visit the website at blendedfamilypodcast.com. Remember, to create the peaceful home you desire, all you need is love. Are you still there? Did you enjoy the interview? I bet you'd love a copy of the book for free. I told you I would announce the winner here at the end of the show. The lucky winner is Katrina Traverso at Hotmail.com. So congratulations to you. If you're listening, please email me at melissa at blendedfamilypodcast.com and let me know your address. That way, Julie can send you the signed copy directly. Thank you all for subscribing to my newsletter. And don't worry if you didn't win this time. There will be plenty of other opportunities. Bye, everyone. Have a great week.